0: Welcome to Bible Study. This is Nick Krita, your host. Thank you for tuning in. It's again our uh, privilege and pleasure to welcome you to the program. Today we are going to look into a very interesting uh, Bible study, Contrary Passages. My dear friend, we are going to approach some of the difficult questions in the Bible and try to explain with the Bible. But if you have a comment or a question, You are invited to let us know. You can always send us a text message to the number provided or write an email to the email address, which we provide also at the beginning and at the end of the program. We may give this uh, number again during the program just in case if you miss it out. I would like to welcome our panel for today. Good to have you with us. Brenton, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you, Nick. Uh, It is going to be a very interesting study. Joe, it's good to have you back with us.
2: Thank you, Nick. It's always good to be on the panel. Thank you.
0: Jerry. thank you for joining.
3: Thank you, Nick. Pleasure to be
0: here. Ligia, also thank you for having uh, you today.
4: Yes, thank you. I feel very pleased.
0: Len, it's good to have you part of this program too. Thank you, Nick. I would like to welcome Denise to the program. It's good to have you with us, Denise.
5: Thank you, Nick. It's lovely to be here.
0: Now, a special um, welcome and thank to you, Denise, because you prepared this Bible study, you put it together, and you are going to facilitate the discussion today. Uh, Thank you for all those uh, things and the time putting into it. Um, Could you please just take us through?
5: Sure. The question arises, does the Bible present a harmonious presentation of its beliefs, or are there some passages that seem to contradict those beliefs. Our Bible study today is looking at five passages which seem to be rather ambiguous. They seem to teach the immortality of human souls after death. So the panel is going to be looking at each of these passages and from reading other Bible texts and what religious commentators have said, we will endeavour to see if indeed these passages portray that people live on after death. I'd like to read a text that I hope will underpin our discussion today. It's found in John 5, verses 39 and 40, and I'm reading from the NIV version. It says, You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. These words were spoken by Jesus to the Jewish leaders who searched and thought they knew the scriptures well. But they rejected Jesus and his offer of eternal life. We on the panel would like to study the scriptures relating to the contrary passages to help us all determine what Jesus' words actually meant and to accept his offer of eternal life. I hope that all of us, both panel and listeners, um, will join us in this quest today.
2: Thank you. Joe. would you... Uh, pray for us, please, Father. Thank you for the precious gift of the Bible. Please be with us as we talk about the truths it sets forth. May Your Holy Spirit enlighten our minds and soften our hearts to receive the truth from Your Word. Give us courage to listen and obey, and to follow You and what is revealed in Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Thank you, Joe. Our first passage for discussion today
5: is found in Luke chapter 16 verses 19 to 31 and it's a parable told by Jesus to his disciples about the rich man and Lazarus. Before we start though, I think we should look at a definition of a parable. The Oxford Dictionary defines a parable as a simple story to illustrate a moral or spiritual lesson as told by Jesus in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Often these parables contained symbols or allegorical language which means they were not meant to be taken literally but had a hidden meaning which was then explained by Jesus to his listeners. Len can you please give us a summary of this parable it's found in Luke chapter 16 verses
6: 19 to 31. Yes well I'd like to add just a tiny little bit to your introductory remarks. Denise, you've said it in different words, but I want to simplify. The parable does not have to be true, but it is to illustrate the truth. A lot of people have the wrong idea about what I'm going to share with you here the rich man and Lazarus. It reminds me a little bit of the search for human ancestors in paleont- paleontology. Uh, I remember reading once where they found a molar. Which later turned out to be a molar from a peak And from that simple molar Artists were commissioned to draw a pre-modern man Well, some of the conclusions that people have About the things we're going to share today A bit like developing a a concept Of what a pre-modern man looked like from a molar Okay, I hope you understand what I'm saying here I'm not going to just summarise, I'm going to read it quickly. Luke 16, 19-31 There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. There was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores, so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the finger of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. And he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you should send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them. Lest they come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear then. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they per- be persuaded though one rise from the dead. Many people assume that this parable is a basis for um their doctrine they assume that the that abraham's bosom means heaven or paradise but i want to tell you that in in the ancient jewish thought when somebody died there were supposedly two places where they would go one was called sheol the grave uh, a place of Rest. And another one was Abraham's bosom. Wasn't heaven. Had nothing to do with heaven. And this was where the uh, righteous dead were supposed to have gone. Now with that background, because it's important, uh, we can discover why this was not heaven. And I'm sure Joe is going to give us some very good explanations.
0: Thank you, Lynn. It's very important, as you mentioned, uh, Len, that um, Abraham is uh, believed, I mean, all through the Bible, that he's still in the grave. The Bible doesn't mention anything that Abraham is uh, in heaven, like some other people, like Moses or Elijah, which the Bible mentions that they are in heaven, which means, again, that this is quite um, unusual interpretation to say that uh, uh, the souls will be in the bosom of Abraham.
6: Yes, that's right.
5: Thanks, Nick. Um, Can you please tell us, Joe, whether this story is meant to be taken literally? So whether it's true, uh, people going to heaven and hell when they die and the dead moving around and talking to live people. Does this story support the belief that the soul lives on after death and can people who have died communicate with the living?
2: Well, that's a very good question, and I think the Bible teaches in Ecclesiastes 9.5, and we've covered this in previous studies, for the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even the memory of them is forgotten. And it goes on to say, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, like right now. For in the grave, where you're going, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. And this uh, this parable appears to, at a glance to contradict not only, um, you know, it contradicts many other passages of the Bible which tell us that the dead know nothing, that all their plans, as we read, come to naught. Uh, So once death occurs, there's no longer any consciousness. There's no going, there's no planning, hoping, caring, thinking, talking, loving. Now we know that Jesus taught through stories, which helped illustrate the principles of his kingdom. And these stories often used activities of daily life, i.e. the sower went forth to sow. And so he used examples that each person listening could associate with or relate to. They had all seen sowers. They've seen people tending sheep or looking for lost ones, clearing the weeds which threaten a vital crop, burning of weeds and their seed to prevent future infestation and many more. The parable of the rich man Lazarus is one such passage. However, it is probably worth saying that most of the people in his audience were quite familiar with this story and it was quite well known at the time. In fact, it can be traced right back to Egypt. The characters were slightly different in the original and evolved with the time, but the main theme remained remained essentially the same. And so his audience, audience were very familiar with it. Some modern readers suppose that this is evidence that the soul receives its reward at death. So we've got Lazarus being summoned to, you know, please let him come and, you know, dip the, you know, so he's got a body, so he's not a disembodied spirit, but he's able to travel from one sphere to another, from heaven to hell, it is supposed. This is not correct, as we know and have studied in depth before. However, on these few occasions where it appears that scripture is contradicting itself, and we're not to take this story literally, we need to zoom out and look at the big picture and see what the Bible teaches on the subject as a whole. Line up all the statements on the topic, and then it would be easier to understand and reconcile what some of the more difficult or apparently contrary passages mean or how they are to be understood. Now, church doctrines, unfortunately, have been created around a handful of ambiguous texts while ignoring the vast body of evidence of plain statements in God's Word to the contrary. Sometimes this is done because we do not like what the Bible teaches or prefer to believe something else, which is more to our liking. But it's important to remember, even if we do that, it does not change the truth. Now, Jesus told this fictional story and dramatized it in order to make his discourse more relevant to his audience. And his point, we only have this life to choose our eternal destiny
1: to go back to chapter 16 and verse 10, well before the parable that Len has shared with us, where it says something along these lines. Here's the lesson. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Then when your earthly possessions are gone, they will welcome you to an eternal home. There are two parables in this particular chapter. One is the unjust steward, and the other one is the one that Len has shared with us and also Joe. I believe it teaches a number of lessons to Nice, but one of the key ones is that this life is the only life in which decisions are made, which have eternal consequences. Now, if I refer back to the verse I just read, during the time that Christ said this parable, the rich man had ample opportunity to help Lazarus and did absolutely nothing to help him. So that fits in pretty well with what I was just reading in, in verse 10 where Jesus says, use your wealth to benefit others so that ultimately you will be received into an eternal reward. The parable he now tells us says the, says that the rich man didn't use his resources to bless others. And as a consequence, that's what happened. I think it also teaches another lesson. The other lesson is that, um, There is going to come a time where the righteous will be rewarded and the wicked will be punished. We find that in Matthew 25, uh, where there's a very clear indication. In fact, some of the principles found in Matthew 25 are similar to what we're reading about here. Really summarizing it, Denise, you could say this. This life is the only place upon which our decisions that we make day by day. And let's, let's be honest. It's not just big decisions. It's all the decisions we make in life. The decisions we make in life are either ensuring that one day we will be with Christ in paradise or they're having the opposite effect. And I think the lesson is that take time each day in the word of God and ask God to guide you always in your decision-making so that your decision-making is leading you to the kingdom of heaven.
6: Some people assume that Abraham is refers to paradise. Or heaven Why would Abraham be the one who speaks Shouldn't it be God If uh, Lazarus Is taken to heaven No, there are quite a few Things in this particular Story that don't Add up with the Idea that people just go to Heaven after they die That is righteous and unrighteous To hell, they just don't add Up, there are so many Difficulties that you can't Logically say that uh, Abraham's bosom
1: refers to heaven. Brenton. Denise, do you think uh, Christ was speaking prophetically here? The example he uses is a rich man, no name. Uh, The beggar, his name is Lazarus. It's not that long after this that he actually raised Lazarus from the dead. And you remember he says here at the end of this, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, they will not believe even if one rises from the dead. If you go to John 11, you'll find out that after Lazarus was risen from the dead or Christ raised him from the dead, the priests and rulers got together and their comment was, what are we going to do? We've got to stop this guy. It doesn't matter what, what, whatever it takes. We have to stop it. In other words, they still didn't believe, even though they'd been present. Some of them at Lazarus's resurrection, they still did not believe that Christ was the Son of God. So, Luke chapter sixteen, I think, is a preface as to what's coming up.
5: Yes, thanks, Brenton. Now,
2: Joe, you had something you wanted to say. Yes, uh, Jesus was trying to say that Israel already had enough revelation from God. The problem was not the lack of revelation, but a lack of response to revelation. And the Pharisees were going to end up on the outside looking in and no second chances were forthcoming. However, I think that there are many layers to this parable. And I think that there was a veiled reference to his own death and resurrection Mm. that that even, you know, though someone were to raise for, be raised, though the Son of Man were to be raised from the dead, that still wouldn't be enough. No. You know, just linking in with what um, Brenton was saying about, you know, they wanted to kill Lazarus just mm. to remove the evidence, remove the evidence of the miracle. And they, you know, tried to cover up Jesus's resurrection as well. And so I think there's many layers to this um parable. Yeah. I don't think it was teaching about teaching about the, you know, the evils of wealth or the virtue of poverty or any of these things. It was primarily talking about, as Brenton so aptly said, you know, there are no second chances, but also that, you know, think carefully about what you're doing. And on many levels, you know, he spoke to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees would have been, like, really livid.
4: I think a spiritual lesson from um, the parable of uh, the rich man and Lazarus is worthy to be shared that Christ shows that in this life men decide their own eternal destiny because during uh, the probationary time the grace of God is offered to every soul but if men waste their opportunities in self-pleasing they cut themselves off from the everlasting life. And no after probation will be granted them. By their own choice, they have fixed an impossible gulf between them and their God. you, Vidicca. Thank you very much for your comments. Um, let's go
5: on to um, the next passage, shall we? Jerry, the, the passage is found in Luke 23, verse 43. Can you uh, read this passage and tell us what's going on?
3: Yes I'd like to um add a few more verses if I may starting from verse um uh, 39 where i read from the new king james bible then one of the criminals who was who who were hang who were hanged blasphemed him saying if you are the christ save yourself and us but the other answering rebuked him saying do you not even fear god seeing you are under the same condemnation and we indeed justly For we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So it's interesting how something that appears to be so clear and unambiguous can be the cause of one of the greatest misunderstandings in Scripture. I'll just read uh, a few verses from chapter 6 of Revelation, uh, starting in verse 9, where it says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. Before we unpack this, can I give an example from a non-biblical example actually of something that I found really interesting and I've never forgotten. There was a time long ago when I, I was involved in sales we went through a, a period where things weren't going too well. Sales were down. And we were called into the office, and uh, the, the, um, the boss wrote something on a whiteboard, just um, four words, simple words. And what he wrote was, opportunity is nowhere, just those words. And that was the prevailing thought among the sales agents. We weren't getting the required result. And then he wrote it a second time underneath. Same words, opportunity is nowhere. But he rubbed out the last word, nowhere, wrote it again, and split it up into now, here. So if you look at the the letters, they were identical. But just making the smallest change altered the meaning completely. This is an interesting passage as well, because um, you only have to make the slightest of changes, and it completely turns it on its head. And, and a lot of people sadly have looked at this and thought, well, that's clear what Jesus is saying here. It seems to be a very clear message that he's sending. And again, we've alluded to this before. If you build a teaching on one verse alone and disregard the many, many other references that say the complete opposite, then you have to ask yourself, does God want us to be clear on this? Is God the author of confusion? Well, according to uh, Paul in his letter to the Corinthians, He's not. God is not the author of confusion. God wants us to have a clear understanding of what happens when you die. And we've been trying to present this lesson after lesson in, um, in the past weeks, and we hope we that, um, that it's starting to crystallise in people's minds.
5: Thank you, Brenton.
1: I, I believe, um, Jerry, and panel, that the word today... There's too much emphasis placed on, on the word today because you've got to look at the overall context of what Christ is saying. Christ came, Christ was taken down from the cross that day because he died. He was buried in the tomb before sunset on Friday evening. The two thieves were not dead. We were told that their legs were broken. Now, if you study anything about crucifixion, you realize that even in a state like that, you can last for several days before you die. It's not Out of the question for people to have lasted from what i've read three or four days so there's no way that uh, christ would have gone to heaven that day because he said in john 2017 to mary touch me not because i haven't yet ascended to my father in heaven i believe the word today means this verily i say to you today in other words my friend you're hanging on the cross alongside me today you will be with me in paradise in other words it's a promise because the, the question of the thief is, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, he probably misunderstood what Christ's kingdom was, but nevertheless, he, he wanted to be with Jesus. And Jesus is saying, verily, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Moses uses the same thing in, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, where he says, I am telling you the feast today. I am telling you these things so that you will live a long and fruitful life. In other words, now now was the the thief's opportunity for salvation. And as you know, Denise, we've often talked about 11th hour conversions and nearly always we think of them in terms of the thief on the cross. So I think that's the answer to that.
5: Nick, um, can you shed some more light on this um, passage that we've been reading and whether the translation that we've been reading um, gives a clear meaning?
0: Yes, uh, Denise, and uh, as Brenton already mentioned uh, quite a bit on this, but just um, uh, to look again, um, uh, you know, to try and gain a clear understanding of the biblical ideas, it's always um, a help to compare scripture with scripture, and we are encouraged uh to do that uh, by uh, that passage in second uh, uh, Timothy chapter three verse sixteen and yeah you Brenton just mentioned uh this uh, passage in john twenty uh, verse seventeen which shows that um After Jesus was resurrected, he did not return straight to heaven. Um, And he stated this, as uh, Brenton said, uh, to the uh, women which uh, came across him and say, not to touch me because I haven't uh, um, ascended to the Father. Now, this passage is very interesting because uh, as you read in the Bible, and most of us, when we read in the Bible, we look at as it is in the Bible. Very few people are going to do any further, you know, uh, studies in regard to a passage in the Bible. Now, when you read that uh, today, I'll, t- I'll tell you that you will be with me in paradise. People will believe that. OK, but if you consider that in those days when it was written, this passage, there was not punctuation or there's not like even chapters in the Bible. There was just a, a, a flow. I mean, you can say it. Uh, Jesus could say to him, today I tell you, for certain, you will be with me in paradise. Now he hasn't expanded on that one. When I come back in my kingdom, you will be with me in paradise. An assurance to the thief, which converted in the last minute to Jesus' teachings. He heard about that, but when he saw in reality how Jesus behaved even on the cross, I think... This thief was converted in the last minute, and Jesus really assured him. I remember a little story I've been told many years ago. I'm I'm not sure if it was a true story or uh, even as an example, but even if it's just an example, I think it means a lot. I heard about that a king was condemning to death one of his uh, people, and was a young man, and uh, the mother was pleading with the king and said, please forgive uh, my son. And the king, you know, he thought, if I do that, I will look bad before my kingdom. But what I can do for this poor woman? And he wrote a note with no punctuation, and give it to the lady and said, now you do whatever you like with that uh, note. And he said something like this, I'm trying to translate it from my language, but he says, to be executed, is not possible to be saved. Now you can put the punctuation where you like and you can say to be executed is not possible to be saved. Or you can say to be executed is not possible to be saved. And this lady used that uh, letter in favor of her son. Now with the Bible, it's a little bit different because uh, we really need to understand and to know the will of God and God It's teaching us, in the whole Bible, what is His will. Many Christians today, they would like to believe that we are Christians of the New Testament, not even looking into the Old Testament. But if it suits our purpose, we're looking in the Old Testament when we wish. I believe the Bible is not like that. It's not a tool to justify my own understanding. I believe the Bible is the Word of God which correctly understood will bring us closer to Jesus, closer to God to be saved for eternity.
6: With regard to doctrine and understanding God's word, we must not base our doctrine on a pig's tooth. As you know, we have another typical thing in the scriptures, in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14, a lot of people based on this text, say that the Ten Commandments, the law was done away with, but they fail to see that it was the ceremonial law which is no longer needed because of Christ. And so many people jump to this conclusion with regard to this verse in uh, Luke chapter uh, 23 and verse 43, which says, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. And then there's a comma in most Bibles, not all. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, if you shift the comma, it says, I tell you the truth today, you will be with me in paradise. Yes, the thief gave his heart to the Lord. He acknowledged he was a sinner and Christ promised him he would have eternal life. He didn't promise it that day. Brenton said that, that thief might have lived for three or four days longer. He also pointed out that Jesus had not been back to heaven because Jesus said that to Mary. So the doctrine based on this little comma is wrong, and we have to look at other texts in the Bible to come to the full understanding. John fourteen one to 3. Let not not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God and you believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. Yes. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you with me that you may be where I am. You cannot marry the idea that the spirit floats off to heaven at death to paradise Based on that text there I read in Luke Because it doesn't marry up with what John said It doesn't marry up with the thoughts of the day even The thief, we can have no doubt When Jesus comes back again We'll go back with him to heaven He will then be in paradise Along with those others who have been faithful And those who are still alive at the time when Jesus comes, who are also faithful. That comma has been responsible for a great deal of confusion. It's building a doctrine out of a pig's tooth.
5: Thank you, Len. That was very clear. Nick, you wanted to say something.
0: Yeah, Just very uh, quickly, I want to reiterate on what Len was saying about that comma. You know, in the Bible, many people will say this, Based on Matthew chapter five, said that Jesus says that not even a joke will be lost, you know, from, uh, from the words he spoke. And people can base the beliefs on uh, this thing, which is so true that not even a little joke will pass away before it will be fulfilled what Jesus spoke. But again, we are not talking about here uh, where we who like to put a comma or take a comma through the translations or through other means when the Bible was put together. We have to understand the principle which Jesus speaks about or the Bible speaks about in the context of the story, not out of context.
5: Thanks, Nick. Our third passage for today is Philippians 1, verses 21 to 24. Can you please read this
2: passage, Joe, and talk about its context for us? Certainly. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am going on... If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, and it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Now there's a couple of phrases in this passage which a casual reader might say, hey, there it is. Paul was expecting to go to Jesus as soon as he died. And many think that, and churches who base their teaching and beliefs on it. But that understanding would negate all the other things Paul said about death and the resurrection. It would also contradict what the rest of the Bible tells us about the subject. I'll use a couple of examples from Paul's writings. For instance, Paul refers to the dead in Christ in his letter to the Thessalonians as those who sleep in Jesus awaiting the resurrection of the righteous. Now, these sleeping saints are not now enjoying the presence of Christ and all that heaven has to offer, and what would be the point of having a resurrection if they were already in heaven? That, that is why he refers to them as asleep, just as Jesus did. Jesus also referred to the dead as sleeping. Now, Paul also tells the Corinthians in his letter to them, some of whom were worried that if they died before Jesus came, it would be too bad for them. They would miss out as there is no resurrection. If you died, well, you stayed dead. And this was the Sadducee teaching because they rejected the teachings of an afterlife and the resurrection because they wanted to avoid the fact that one day all people will have a day of reckoning with God. So Paul wrote to these Christians in Corinth to reassure them, and it's a worthwhile read, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and mortal with immortality. And it goes on. So Paul well expected that should he die before Christ's return, then he too would be raised by the trump of God. He explains in these passages in Corinthians that neither the living nor the dead in Christ, have an advantage. All are there together to meet Christ that is coming. Now, this falls into line um, also with what he wrote to Timothy, Second Timothy 4, 7 to 8. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, would will allow, award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Note well, he receives the crown and eternal life not at his death as a martyr for Christ, but on that day. Which day, you might ask? Well, the day of Christ's return, the one that is he promised in John that Len referred to, that he goes to prepare a place, um, that he may receive them to himself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Now, this promise applies not only to Paul, and the disciples, but to all the righteous dead and the righteous living. Paul lived his life not to preserve and promote himself, but to glorify Christ. And if Jesus should decide that Paul could best glorify him through laying down his life in martyrdom, then Paul would be well pleased by this opportunity. He trusted God no matter what happened, and he gladly died, knowing that he had a crown waiting for him, at the resurrection on the last day when he would be raised incorruptible at the sound of the Lord's trumpet, not at the moment of his death. I think that would you found that reassuring. Thank
5: you, Joe. It's very reassuring. And thank you for your thorough discussion of that. Brenton, have you got anything you'd like to add?
1: I think really there is another side to it, what Joe was reading in Philippians, and that is this. Paul, I believe, is looking at it from several angles, but one of the angles is you've got to look at what Paul says in light of what he had suffered um, for Christ to date. Can I name them? Five times he was beaten with rods, uh, with um, lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. Three times he was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole day and night in the deep. Uh, I have travelled many long journeys. I've faced dangers from uh, enumerates, uh, everybody including false brethren within the church. And he said, in addition to that, I have the care of all the churches as my responsibility. So when he's uh, reflecting in, in uh, what the passage that Joe read in Philippians 1, I think his reflection includes, I've suffered a lot for Christ to date, which is better what does god want me to do does he want me to remain and continue to be a pillar in the early christian church or should i go to sleep and as joe quite rightly pointed out in second timothy he makes it very very clear that he will not get his reward here on this earth his reward will be received when the lord returns so we've all been through those times denise there have been times when we've been through hard times we've we've said to ourselves I wonder whether I'd be better off dead. I've actually heard people actually make this statement. Someone made it to me not that long ago as a minister where she said, you know what? She'd lost her eyesight. Now, if you're 85 years of age and your eyesight's gone on you, she said, I just wish I would go to sleep and not wake up. Now, luckily, it seems as though some good things are going to happen for her that may restore some of her eyesight. But I think Paul is reflecting. I'm not saying anything what Joe has said covers it beautifully. I'm reflecting on his personal um, reflections on what I've suffered for Christ thus far. What would I be better off doing? Would I be better off going to sleep and then waking up to see my saviour and receive the reward? Or would I be better off continuing on in his service? And he basically comes to the conclusion, I think for your benefit, it would be better off if I kept going.
5: Thank you, Brenton. That was a very clear explanation as well. Our fourth tricky passage is found in first Peter three verses 13 to 20. Can you pr- please read these verses, Len, and give us some explanation of what they mean?
6: Yes. Well, I'm going to pick it up at first Peter three verse 18 and read it through to 20. It says, for Christ died for sins once for all the righteous. That's him. For the unrighteous, that's sinners, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Okay. People jump to a conclusion again. Ah, the Spirit's in prison. It's really... uh, People who believe that are suggesting that there is a second chance. After one dies, you have a second chance. That's a load of baloney. As Brenton said earlier, we have one life to make the decision whether to honour God or disobey. That's it. There's no second chance. When we go to this verse, uh, verses 19 and 20, it says, through whom he... Also he went and preached to the spirits in prison And then it identifies who these people are It says who disobeyed long ago When God waited patiently in the days of Noah Okay, now here is what I consider A logical and clear explanation The spirits in prison doesn't really mean Disembodied intelligent parts of the body It's simply referring to In this case People Disobedient people People who were imprisoned by sin Who were subject to Satan. If you read in Genesis chapter 5 God was very disappointed In the people And then he describes what was happening Their thoughts were evil continually So this is what it's referring to. Now, how did Christ preach to the spirits in prison, to these people who lived before the flood? Well, he used Noah. How long did Noah preach before the flood came? It was 120 years. What was he preaching about? He was preaching about repentance. Repent from your evil to be saved. And that's the the same message that Christ has given. Repent and be saved through me. So this spirits in prison is not referring to some disembodied intelligences. No, it's referring to people who lived before the flood, who were given the message of salvation, but they rejected it.
1: Christ's, um, um, if you will, his manifesto that he gave in the synagogue at Nazareth He said that one of the things he'd come to do was to release the captives. I thought that that was relevant to what uh, Len was talking about. Len was talking about those before the flood. They were imprisoned in their sinfulness. Christ said, I've come to release them. So I think that's worth just adding to what he said.
5: Okay, thank you, Brenton. Um, Christ's offer of salvation to the disobedient at the time of the flood had already been and gone and they made their decisions at the time that Noah preached and it cannot now be changed. These verses then are not a commentary on the state of the dead but rather on what it means to be faithful to Jesus. Mm -hmm. Our last contrary passage for today is found in Revelation 6, verses 9 to 11. Jerry, could you please read these verses for us and give us some explanation on them?
3: Yes, I will, uh, Denise, but um, can I go back just uh, very briefly to um, chapter 4 of Revelation? It says there that uh, that John has a vision of God's throne. And, um, and then in chapter 5, in the first verse, it says, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. Uh, and then the question is asked, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? Now, initially, initially, it's, it looked like nobody was worthy and there was weeping. And in verse five, it says, then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lamb, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And that's further clarified. Who, who is that? Um, in verse nine, it says, and they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. So clearly we're referring to Christ as the one who is worthy to open the seals. And um, what do they represent? If you look down through those seals, it says these seals correlate to different periods in Christian history and what happened to the church in those times, during Bible times, the gospel spread rapidly through the world. It started very rapidly. Uh, this expansion was followed by a period of persecution by the Roman Empire from the end of the first century to the beginning of the fourth century, as portrayed in the scenes of the second seal. Then we come to the th- third seal, points to the period of compromise of the fourth and fifth centuries. A watering down, if you like, of the of the pure faith, characterized by a spiritual famine, when the Bible and its truths were not available during the dark ages. So the people were in darkness as to God's word. The fourth seal describes spiritual death. That characterised Christianity for nearly a thousand years, and it's a horrible a horrible history of what happened, especially in the in the area of Europe. Uh, Northwestern Europe in particular We see A um, tremendous persecution And uh, ignorance as to What the Bible actually taught And then comes the opening Of the fifth seal Which is the passage, passage we're dealing with now
5: Nick Can you give us some explanation Of what this passage in Revelation 6 Verses 9 to 11 is referring to
0: Yes, Dennis, um, this, it's again a very, yeah, interesting passage. And as Jerry was pointing out to all those, uh, seals, uh, uh, pointed in, um, in uh, Revelation chapter six. I would like to say just before I will, uh, comment a couple of things that, uh, these passages, particularly in Revelation, you know, is not easy just to look at them and, uh, make, uh, again, a... a a decision by just reading, you need to do a, a study on these passages, because many things in the book of Revelation are um, represented in symbols and signs, and I will invite you, my dear friend listening today, if you like to hear a bit more or more elaborated, uh, listen or watch some of the programs, Salvation in Symbols and Signs. It's a wonderful uh, program put together by our partners, and uh, I'll really encourage you to look into this because we will really give a good explanation of the passage. Now, um, the scenes actually here for the first, the fifth seal, uh, applies historically um, to the time which represented Protestantism. Also, and we know that during uh, uh, that period of time, a uh, lots of people lost their lives. Um, we even know in history is known the you know the dark ages, you know, before uh, the the dawn of um, of the Reformation, and. I will say that in uh, in short uh, comments here, uh, Denise and panel, based also on uh, passages in Leviticus, for example, chapter 4 and verse 30, which talks about the ministry and the activity, if you like, in the tabernacle in the Old Testament, how the blood of the animals were sprinkled around the altar, you know, and um, each of that blood represented the sinner who repented. And I would like to say here that when we read this passage in Revelation, we need to understand also the ministry of Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary. If we don't understand that, it will be very difficult to make a statement just based on this passage and then come up with a doctrine or um, make a doctrine to suit us if we believe in that. For example, there is not such thing in the Bible mentioned about um, purgatory, but the church or Christians, they had to come up with something to justify their position of certain things, like the uh state of the dead or uh the immortal soul. These are very sensitive passages in the Bible and uh, we can easily be deceived by just embracing that tradition we've been told in the in the church. And then we can support with some passages in the Bible if we don't know what that means in the background. I, I believe, yes, because of lack of time today here, our program is uh, coming uh, very rapidly to the, to the close. Uh, I will encourage our listener to go to that program, Salvation in Symbols and Signs. And this will be explained uh, in, uh, in um, detail, the fifth seal.
2: Thank you, Nick. Joe, you wanted to say something. Yes, I believe that, um, the souls under the altar really is a literary device. Um, pretty much along the lines of when Cain killed his brother Abel, Abel's blood, blood called out to God from the ground. It wasn't literally calling out. It was basically saying there's evidence of spilt blood, which demanded justice. Um, and so these, these souls that had been martyred and, there was evidence you know, it had happened and God knew about it. And so it kind of pleas and begs for justice simply by the virtue of it having happened and it being a gross injustice. So I think it's just a literary device rather than, you know, speak blood speaking, just like in Abel's time. I think there's probably he was the first martyr and every other martyr down the ages basically fell into, you know, into that line. Brenton, you want to say something?
1: It may have been a literary device, and I agree with Joe on that. However, God is bound to answer the prayer or the request here. There has to come a time where God puts what is wrong right, and uh, he needs to do that not only to um, free his murdered saints and bring them to life again. He needs to do it to demonstrate that he is a God of both justice and also a God of mercy. The rest of the universe are looking on to see whether Christ is going to uh, avenge the blood of his saints, and that time will come. So therefore, what they're praying for here, God is bound to answer, and I believe that that's very positive today, because when we're going through persecution today for what we believe to be right, Denise, I believe that God takes note of that, and he will put it right very, very soon.
0: What we need to also understand and, and take notice of that we live in a time when we are waiting for the coming of Jesus Christ. And Brenton mentioned that the Bible speaks about uh, hardship and even persecution towards those people who follow Jesus. Now imagine 2000 years after many promises of Jesus, people are still waiting for that blessed hope we're talking about, you know, the, the promises of God. And the phrase in, in chapter 6 in Revelation is, for how long? For how long? And you know, God is encouraging us again today. Hold on, my dear child. Hold on. Things will come to pass. Things will come to fulfillment. We may ask questions today, my dear friend listening today, you may go through some difficult times in life, and you may ask yourself, for how long, Jesus, you're still uh, waiting or not coming to put an end to this troubled world? And that's a just question. But God, in his own time, he will answer every single question we have.
5: Thank you, Nick. Lydia, would you like to make the last comment on this passage that we looked at in R- Revelation six
4: verses nine to eleven? Yes. So uh, the souls under the the altar who were crying to God for vengeance against their oppressors—they were seen metaphorically. So there are no literal souls laying at the base of the altar in heaven. The whole scene was a pictorial and symbolic representation of those who were killed for their faithfulness to Jesus in times of extreme persecution. One biblical scholar said, the altar is clearly the altar of sacrifice, where the sacrificial blood was poured. The fact that John saw the souls of martyrs under the altar is merely a vivid way of picturing the fact that they had been martyred in the name of their God. So the text is not literal, but has a metaphorical meaning. And I would like to read Psalm 79, verse 10, where it says that Before our eyes make known among the nations that you avenge the outpoured blood of your servants. So it means that ultimately God will avenge their sufferings. Thank you, Lydia.
5: Thank you, panel, for your insights and contribution today. As we conclude the study of the contrary passages in the Bible, I hope that it has inspired you to compare Scripture with Scripture, especially those that don't appear to be consistent with other teachings in the Bible. We know that Jesus taught using symbolic language to explain spiritual ideas and that these can be understood as being consistent with other biblical teachings. The Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth and give you wisdom as you seek to understand God's word. Brenton, would you close with prayer today,
1: please? Certainly. Father in heaven, you are the life giver, and we read a text right at the start that um, Jesus said, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. Lord, today we have searched the scriptures. I pray with an honest heart and an honest soul, and that... uh what we have shared today, Lord, will help our listeners as they go through their lives. We thank you that the thief is not in heaven. The thief is sleeping. He's awaiting Jesus' return. The apostle Paul is sleeping. He's awaiting Jesus' return. The apostle Peter is sleeping. They're awaiting Jesus' return. And we thank you for the promises of scripture that each one of them will receive the same crown of life. We too. Those of us who are on the panel and those who are listening, we too can receive that crown of life. Lord, may we look into your lovely face one day soon and receive that crown of life and hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter the joy of your Lord. This is my prayer for us today and for our listeners in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thank you, everyone, for your participation today. Uh, Indeed, a very interesting uh, study with with lots of questions Mm -hmm. uh, uh, arising, I believe. My dear friend listening today, you may have questions or you may have a thought. uh, Please send us an email to ioncrita at yahoo.com. That's I-O-N-C-R-E-T-A at yahoo.com. And we'll be very happy to uh, assist you further with um, maybe some more information in regard to these very important questions in the Bible. We are inviting you to join us again next time when we are going to study another very hot subject, and that will be the fires of hell. Until then, may God richly bless you and have a wonderful and safe walk in the footsteps of Jesus.